This morning as we begin, I would have you turn to Acts chapter 1. We will get to Ephesians 4 in short order, but first I want to to read what the scriptures say to us about the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fourth chapter of Ephesians and Christ's gifts to his church are based upon the fact that he is now ascended into heaven and the book of Ephesians and the entirety of the New Testament ascribes great weight to this last earthly event in the life of the Lord Jesus which uniquely qualified him to bestow gifts upon his church. So if you've found Acts chapter 1, if you'll read along with me, verses 9, 10, and 11. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Every Christian's hope is pinned on the return of Jesus Christ. His return ushers us into the eternal state with him, but it also signals the entrance into an another eternal dwelling place for those who are outside of Christ, either who have died in their sins or are found in their sins when he returns in that place the scripture calls the place of fire, Gehenna. We refer to it often as a devil's hell. So this is the event that is used by Paul in Ephesians 4, if you want to join me there now. We've been studying through the book of Ephesians since the first of the year. We find ourselves this morning concerned with verse 11 and 12, but before we get there, I want to rehearse and look at what we began to look at last week where Paul goes back to Psalm 68 and uses that psalm to teach us about the qualifications of Jesus Christ as the ascended Lord to give gifts to his church. Often we'll quote the words of Jesus on the cross, it is finished. But we need to understand what Christ was referring to there on the cross just before he gave up his spirit when he said it is finished. He was referring to his redemptive work, the price that he paid for our redemption, the shedding of his own blood, the breaking of his own body, which we will commemorate at the conclusion of this service, has been, had been finished. The fountain had been filled with blood, and it continues to flow. My invitation comes very early in this sermon. The invitation is, you must be plunged beneath the flood 
to lose all your guilty stains. That's what we sang earlier. There is no other way under heaven by which you will be saved. You will be saved by the shed blood of Jesus Christ alone or you will not be saved. If you are not covered by the blood of Christ and by faith have his perfect obedience applied to you in righteousness, then you will be found in your sins at the return of Christ. Or if you die in this life before Christ returns, you will die in your sin. The scripture speaks that plainly. Even though men have muddied the water, even though different religions, different denominations muddy the water, the scripture speaks with stark clarity. There is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. The second verse of that old hymn that we sing refers to the dying thief. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. It's always interesting, and I've preached a sermon or two on the, on the thief on the cross, but I'm always going back to that. This same thief, just moments earlier, just a few minutes before, was reviling and mocking Christ along with the other thief. But then something happened. No decision of his. His only choice was to mock and deride Christ. Something happened to this thief. And he begins to, in his own way, cry out for mercy, asking Christ to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. And you remember what Jesus said. Even there as he hang upon the cross, bleeding, suffering, and dying to make a sacrifice not just for my or your sin, but the collective sin of his people of all time, even in that condition, he looks to this one who just moments earlier was mocking him and said, today you'll be with me in paradise. I don't know that there is a greater place in all the scriptures where the mercy and compassion of Jesus towards sinners condemned to death is on a greater display than that. This man was very near death. Very near. And Christ saved him. You and I this morning, regardless of our age, regardless of our current physical condition, are very near unto death. Christ will save you. You can be with him forever in paradise. But you must come to him on his terms. You must come to him as the resurrected and now ascended Lord. Once Christ returned to heaven in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, we're told that he was seated at the Father's right hand. The writer of Hebrews tells us as much. His redemptive work was finished, but his work on behalf of his people was not yet complete. And his work on behalf of his people will not be complete until he returns at a time which only his Father knows. The work that Christ is undertaking now for us is the work of intercession. He is interceding on our behalf before a holy God. I like the way the old authors, the, some of the old Puritan authors would, would write about this. They would say that Christ is there pleading his wounds before the Father on behalf of his people. 
making constant appeal to the Father, look at the price that I paid. Look at the sufficiency of my blood. Have pardoned and pardoned them. Have mercy upon them. So this is the work that he is performing even now, this morning, on our behalf. He is active on our behalf. And as such, he is the preeminent one in his church. He is to receive all glory and praise and honor. If you found your place back in Ephesians 4, this event of Christ's ascension is the foundation upon which his gifting, the church, rests. I want to go back and read verse 7 down through verse 16 just so we can see these verses in a little bit larger light. Verse 7 says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who has ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, just an aside here on verse 10. A couple of times in Acts chapter 1, what we read, those who were standing there in Galilee with puzzled look on their face as they peered into heaven, as they saw Jesus ascend into heaven, they were told, this same Jesus will so come in like manner. So when we put all of these things together, it is true that He has ascended far above all the heavens that He might fill all things. He is the resurrected, ascended, reigning, preeminent Lord of the church, holding all things together by the word of His power, sustaining all things, the only one that is filled with all might and power and glory, but yet He is still this same Jesus. Just as He came, or just as He ascended into heaven, He will return and work out our full ransom. Isn't that a comforting thought to you? That this all-powerful Lord who now sits at the Father's right hand, having ascended into heaven after having taken His seat, being omnipotent, omnipresent as He is, filling all things by His power, is the same Christ that is coming for you and for me. That's a comfort to the people of God. To begin verse 11, He Himself, this is emphatic, it is, it is He Himself, the One who descended into the lower parts of the earth, the One who descended into Calvary's hell for you, and then ascended to His Father's right hand, He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Notice the expectation of Christ for his church. 
To be conformed to His image. That's the reason that Paul says in Romans chapter chapter 9 that we are, excuse me, chapter 8, that we are redeemed at all so that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. He says it a different way here. To the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Satan would have you and I be perpetually immature in the things of God. If we're saved at all, he would have us be under the trickery of men and never growing up into the fullness of the measure of the stature of Jesus Christ. Let me appeal to you, based upon the foundation of the Scriptures, do not let that be true of you. Do not let it be said of you that you are being prey to the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but rather much to the far extreme, speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into Him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body is joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. And notice every joint is supplying what it has been given of Christ to supply to the body according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Before we back up to verse 11, let me just make a point of application here. Sometimes we would rightly say that it is the Spirit of God using the Word of God that grows us up into the church. That's a a real, biblically founded thought. But I want to give you another one. Remind you of what we just read. What causes the body of Christ to grow, not so much numerically, but as in maturity? Well, according to Paul, it does so by every part doing its share. This is what causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. We all want to be a part of a body that is edifying to one another. The word edify here means to be built up. We want to benefit from what the church has to offer. But notice, what the church has to offer comes from its individual members. And sometimes we pull the rug out from under ourselves, don't we? We want what we are not willing to give. We want to be edified and be growing in the body. We want to reap those benefits without seeing the necessity of our part doing its share so that someone else may reap the benefit of what we bring to the table, having been given something by Christ to bring to the table. That's what verse 7 taught us a few weeks ago. To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. 
So it is a short-circuited thought to think that we come to church to receive only. We come and assemble as the body of Christ certainly to receive good from His hand, to be edified by one another, but to be the one that is edifying another as well. Every part doing its share, every member is vital. And as we read last week from 1 Corinthians 12, Christ has placed the members of the body together just as He pleased. He is the greatest church growth strategy, if I can even say it that way. He knows exactly what we need. And so to that point, we're told here that it is He Himself who gave these gifts to His church. Notice with me in verse 11. There are four groups of people mentioned in verse 11. All, all four of them are Christ's gift gifts to His church. But from the outset, I want you to note something with me. The emphasis here is not on the gifts themselves. The gifts are simply mentioned in passing. The emphasis is on the giver of the gifts. The emphasis is on His not only ability, but willingness and qualification as being the Redeemer, the head of the church, to bestow such gifts upon individuals that then use those gifts within the context of the local church. So we'll deal with them in turn. And He Himself gave some to be apostles. You know, it's not unusual in our own day to see someone identifying themselves as apostle so-and-so. Claiming and taking for themselves this title and trying to assume its full weight and authority. Now, if we're dealing with only the Word and not the office, make that distinction in your mind. There is the office of apostle, and then there is what we refer to as the small or lowercase apostle, of which everyone in the room, every Christian is an apostle in that sense. We are the sent ones of Jesus Christ to go and share His good news, to edify one another in love. That's not what's being spoken of here by Paul. He is speaking of the office of apostle. Strictly speaking, an apostle in the New Testament was one that had seen the resurrected Christ, who had actually physically laid their eyes on Christ. That would include Saul of Tarsus become Paul, the apostle, because he saw the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. But not only did they see Him, they were commissioned by Christ to carry out the office of apostle. To be the teachers and the instructors of the church. To be the writers of Scripture. Acts chapter 2 tells us that the church, the early church, was continually giving themselves to the apostles' doctrine. That group, that small group that Christ 
drew around himself, poured his life into, his ministry into, were the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ and wrote the Scriptures for us. Now there are other men in the Scriptures who are drawn into this apostolic office as well because of their close association with the original apostles like Paul. For instance, if you were to read Acts chapter 14 and verse 4, Barnabas is designated there as an apostle. In his introduction to 1 Timothy, Paul says of himself, Silas, and Timothy. Then in the 6th verse of chapter 2, he designates this group, we or us, as apostles of Jesus Christ. So it seems like at least those three, Barnabas, Timothy, and Silas, were drawn into this group and included in this group of the apostles. The second designation, prophets. And notice the order. It's the same as it was back in verse 5 of chapter 3. It's apostles and then prophets, I think, delineating that these are both New Testament offices. I don't think Paul is here referring to the prophets of the Old Testament. The New Testament speaks of those who bore this office. Curtis Vaughn defines them as those who perform a preaching function, speaking under immediate inspiration of the Spirit of God. You might remember the mentioning of men like Agabus in Acts chapter 11 and verse 27. The prophets of the New Testament speaking the very words of God under immediate inspiration. Their words had immediate application and bearing on the church. And then we get down to these last two. Evangelists and pastors, and teachers. And before we move on, I want, I want us to make a, a division between these two groups. The first two prophets, or excuse me, apostles and prophets seem to be, when you study them out in the larger context of Scripture, these strict offices are confined to the New Testament period or first century Christianity. And that's not just some whim or wishful thinking on my part. I think we can carry this line of thought out and prove it in Scripture by saying things like this. The apostles and prophets were necessary gifts of the Lord to His church when as yet there was no written New Testament or epistles. God gave direction and guidance to His people through apostles and prophets. You might remember the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, this whole issue of what place does circumcision have in the life of the New Testament church. Well, the apostles convened. They met. There was a council. They gave a definitive word, published that to the church. That is their, their office and the function of that office recorded for us in the New Testament. The prophet is much the same. 
If we define the prophet strictly as one, as Curtis Vaughn did, who has a preaching function speaking under the immediate inspiration of the Spirit of God, then that too must be confined to this New Testament period or first century Christianity. And then after, after the Lord used these apostles of His in writing the Gospels, giving us the history of the church and the history of His people and the history of Christ, what Christ did, what He accomplished on the cross, His his death, His burial, His resurrection, His ascension, all of these details. And then He used Paul and John and Peter to write authoritative epistles to His churches and sometimes to individuals like Timothy or Titus or Philemon. After these were in general circulation, most would conclude that the offices strictly defined as apostle and prophet ceased. And that's something, quite frankly, that we should be thankful for. God has a definitive word. We are told to adhere to it. Every word of this book that we, we call the Scriptures is inspired of God. He moved holy men to write. He moved them along by His Spirit to give us the truth that He would have us to know. And then once He gave us this full body of truth, the canon we call it, the canon of Scripture, those writings which measure up to be the Word of God, which the early church in the early centuries being most closely associated to the ministry of the, the New Testament apostles and prophets, they, quote, canonized the Scriptures. And from that time period on, there has been no new written revelation of God. So when we say the Scriptures are sufficient, He has given us in them everything that pertains to life and godliness. There is nothing that we are lacking to know about our own sinful condition, about the wage of that sinful condition being death, about the necessity of that sinful condition being dealt with in the sight of a holy God, and what Christ has done to come and remedy that situation. We have everything that we need. And I, for one, and you probably as well, are thankful that we are not subjected to the personal whims of everyone who would designate themselves as an apostle or prophet in the strict sense of Jesus Christ. We have a sure word of prophecy. We need not doubt it. We need not add to it. We need not detract from it. God in His wisdom, operating through the gift of Christ to His church, gifted especially certain men to fulfill these early apostolic offices and the offices of prophets. Then, he's, then He gave us the entirety of His Word. And that moves us into these last two offices. Evangelists and some pastors 
and teachers. You might say, well, there's three offices there, evangelists, pastors, teachers. But notice, some, the first some in this verse is tied to evangelists. And then it's some pastors and teachers, not some pastors and some teachers. That leads many to understand that this pastor-teacher is one office with a dual function. But let's deal with the first, the gift of evangelists. This word in and of itself is used very sparsely in the New Testament only three times in all the New Testament is this office referred to. Once in Acts 21, verse 8, when it's referring to Philip, the evangelist. Once it's not the office, but the carrying out of that office in reference to Timothy, when Paul tells him to do the work of an evangelist. 2 Timothy 4, verse 5. And then the third place is right here in our text. He gave some evangelists. To what group of people is this applicable? Well, let's go negative first. (laughs) Paul is not referring here to the general great commission work of evangelism that every New Testament believer is under. If you're a believer in Christ, you were called through Christ's commissioning of you under what we call His Great Commission to do the work of an evangelist. To tell other people about Jesus Christ and what He has done to save sinners. To share your own testimony of grace. To let them know, this is what He's done for me. This is how Christ has taken me from being this and how now He has taken me to be this. This is how He conveyed me from a kingdom of darkness into the Son, into the kingdom of the Son in whom He loves. This is not a general reference to that work of evangelism. I think it's far more particular and specific than that. And there are those who would confine this office as well to the New Testament era. I'm not seeing it that strictly because I think that God even today especially gifts those with the ability to clearly, concisely, and it's much more than just the clear, concise words that they speak, but a special endowment of His Spirit to reap a harvest of souls. Go and find a good biography on George Whitfield. It was said of Whitfield that even as he made his way into a meeting, just his physical presence, the Spirit of God began to move upon people. And when he opened his mouth to preach, there was a mighty response to the gospel. That's what I think Paul has in mind when he's writing about the gift of Christ to his church of an evangelist. 
someone in whom the Spirit of God is resting and especially blessing and using because of nothing in themselves, merely of his own good pleasure, to use them to open their mouth and people respond in repentance and faith to the message of the gospel that comes through them in a unique and mighty way. And again, that doesn't set the rest of us free from the work of evangelism. We are all bound by this duty that is to be carried out in love towards Christ. But Christ, in gifting His church, has given some to be evangelists. The word strictly means to be a a herald of good news, to speak glad tidings, to let others know that their experience in this world of pain and grief and sorrow is not all that there is, but there's good news to be heard. Good news that Jesus Christ has come. He has wrapped Himself in flesh. He was born of a virgin. He grew up and became mighty in stature before God. He ministered kindness and mercy to those around Him. He ate with sinners. He was a friend of sinners. And in time, He took upon Himself at the cross of Calvary the sin of His people, so much so that His Father forsook Him there on the cross. The full weight of that ringing in our ears when Jesus would say and cry out to His his Father, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? He was made sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. This is the good news that we are called. And this is the good news that those gifted of the Spirit especially make known through this ministry of evangelism. You're a sinner. You have Adam's original sin and you have acted out upon that sin. You stand as guilty before God. And if you are to die in your sins, you will experience His unswerving, unending judgment. The wrath of God forever heaped upon you. And He is totally just in giving you what you deserve. But the good news is you can be free of all of that in Christ. You can be numbered amongst those who can say, there is therefore now no condemnation directed towards me because I am in Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ anyway? It means to be united to Him by faith. It means to have repented of your sins, to have turned from them, but not just turning away. That's We often short-circuit our thinking about repentance. We, we think it's an about-face from sin. It is that, but it's not an about-face from sin to nothingness. It's a turning from sin and a full embracing of Jesus Christ by faith that God has worked for you this tremendous gift that He has given, this is where you must be found. You must be in Christ. This is the good news that we preach. This is the good news that you, as a professing believer in Christ, heard once in your own life. 
in your own heart. And if you can go back to that point in time of your understanding, perhaps it was as a child or as an older adult, but if you go back and you contemplate that, you heard this message of Christ and it was to you good news. There is a way that I can be saved from the wrath to come. Let me just tell those of you who have yet to come to faith in Christ, flee the wrath to come. It's coming. It's not here only because God is full of mercy. And I'm talking about it's coming in its full fury. Everything that we read in Scripture is going to come to pass. The wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience who are even now the objects of His wrath. If there was words that I could say to fully impress upon you, I would say them. But I understand I, I, as the rest of us, are completely at the mercy of the Spirit of God, taking that truth and applying it to your heart in such a way that you can do nothing but run to Jesus Christ. I and the rest of us could line up behind this pulpit and talk until we are are blue in the face and completely exhausted and worn out. But if the Spirit of God does not come and breathe upon these slain and make application of Christ's work, then it's all in vanity and futility. But there's one other piece of good news that I can share with you. It pleases Him. It pleases Him to come and do that work and to breathe upon the slain. And to put a new heart within them. To remove that old stony heart. And give them not only a new heart of flesh that is alive to the things of God, but that is also filled with new desires. Filled with new appetites. So please hear me. May the Spirit of God drive it down to the depth of your soul. If you are not in Christ... You are under the wrath of God, the object of His wrath. Flee to Him before it is too late. The fact that God is kind and forbearing, do not let that fact of His nature lull you to sleep. Because that's just one aspect of who He is. The other aspect of who He is is a God of complete justice who by no means will spare the guilty. He will not be overcome in a moment of compassion. He is not going to accept you based upon any goodness of your own. Do every good thing that you can do and you will not even begin to address your condition before a holy God. All are not going to be saved in the end. There are many who read Scripture and come to that conclusion because they look and see the great attributes of God's love, His mercy, His compassion, His tender mercies and kindness And they can find God as as to being this. And in the end, He's just not going to have heart enough to condemn anyone to a sinner's hell. 
may I encourage you to read the whole Bible. To read the book of Hebrews where the writer says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He is an all-consuming fire. Make no mistake, standing before God on judgment day, you have no excuse because you've heard the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, what do you do? You run to Christ by faith, you apprehend Him, and you do not let Him go. The beautiful part of this is He's not letting you go. In your weakest moment as a Christian, when you feel your faith will fail, He will hold you fast. He is not going to lose you. And every Christian, I suppose, from time to time, because of the nature of indwelling sin and the assault of Satan as being the the lion that prowls around roaring against the people of God, every Christian falls into some season of despondency. It's what Martin Lloyd-Jones referred to as spiritual declension. What's the remedy? The same remedy as your initial conversion. Run to Christ. Cast all your hope and care upon Him. Knowing that He has not only saved you, He is saving you. And He is able to keep you from stumbling. That's why Jude tells us two things. Keep yourself in the love of God. And aren't you so thankful, I'm so thankful that he kept writing. And he didn't leave us with that. Keep yourselves in the love of God. My, my question, my own experience would be how? How can I keep myself in the love of God? Ultimately, even through the use of means, the means we've been given, the Scriptures and prayer and the ordinance of the supper and baptism, how can I keep myself in the love of God? But then Jude thankfully goes on to say, in, in the form of doxology, now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling, be all praise and glory to Him. So we've looked at three of these offices. The gifts of Christ to His church. Notice that they are all working in the same direction. They are not opposed to one another. They are all links of the same chain with the same end in mind, and that is the edifying of the body, the building up of the body. And we're going to come back to this last office next week, the pastor-teacher, and see how it applies to this work in Scripture. But we go right from this Scripture that tells us that Christ has gifted His church in gifts given to be carried out and worked out in the life of the church to another gift of Christ to the church, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. There's only two. Baptism, the initial sign of your conversion, 
in your identification with Jesus Christ, in great imagery, picturing your death to self and sin, your being raised to walk in newness of life, you're a new creature, and then this ordinance of the supper, where we take ordinary elements, and we're not ascribing to them any extraordinary thing. We're not saying they become the body and blood of Jesus. We're saying they represent the body and blood of Jesus. And we're taking these two elements and internalizing them, feeding our body, but picturesque of feeding our soul on the things of Christ. And in so doing, Paul says, we're proclaiming his death until he comes. So let me pray, and then I'll ask you men to come forward. Father, we come to you. We're thankful for Jesus Christ. His death, burial, resurrection, his ascension into heaven, where he now intercedes on our behalf. We're thankful that he has given gifts to men, gifts to his church, to be used and carried out in the strength of the Spirit and to the edifying of the whole body. Lord, help us in this day in which we live not to be tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men. Help us to be led by the Scriptures, to give ourselves to their study. And may you show yourself to us on every page. Lord, often our reading comes down to being a tedious time of discipline. Lord, I pray by your Spirit you would breathe a freshness 